You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, pandemic loneliness, the challenge of fundraising during these difficult times, and Blue Door's inclusion. But we begin with cutting the red tape. Another province-wide lockdown and stay-at-home order to contend with as small and medium businesses were just beginning to get back on their feet again. The Ontario government announced legislation late last week to try and support businesses facing incredible financial challenges, with the deck seemingly stacked against them now that the powerful pandemic has picked up steam once more. Prabhit Sarkaria, Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Reduction, joins us now on the feed. Thank you for taking the time. Hi, Minister Sarkaria. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me here today. And it's, it's always an absolute pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm glad to hear that there is some forward movement when it comes to helping businesses. So you, on Thursday, uh, unveiled the Supporting Recovery and Competitiveness Act. Tell me what it is comprised of. You know, this is uh, one uh, step uh, in our process of supporting businesses uh, throughout Ontario that we all know have been disproportionately impacted during the pandemic, you know, whether it be the small business support grant that we put forward, which, you know, uh, accumulated over $1.7 billion of, of payment and now is actually in the next couple of days going to be doubling to an automatic commitment of $3.4 billion. Um, we've also been very actively pursuing ways to ensure that businesses um, get support through regulatory modernization. So this is about uh, making sure that the government is shifting uh, to di- from paper to digital form so, so businesses can save money. Um, we're looking at uh, you know, ways uh, to support businesses um, uh, through streamlining uh, inspections uh, so they're not complying with multiple different uh, uh, legislations. Um, it's, it's really about consolidation. It's about ensuring that you know, we're, um, uh, you know, from, from a perspective, you know, for example, you know, in the trucking industry, um, when we look at license plate stickers, you know, here, in, in, you know, for personal automobiles, we can um, simply go online and renew our sticker. But, you know, for many uh, individuals that operate trucks or, or trucking companies that exist, they physically have to go to a location and get a sticker. They can't do it online. So, you know, imagine all the time spent uh, doing that for each truck driver. Um, we're simplifying those processes. We're, we're taking those online. We're making sure that we reduce the cost of complying um, with government uh, regulation uh, in a safe way, uh, but that one that uh, supports businesses at the same time. Kind of sounds like you're streamlining what you do as well as helping businesses. Exactly. It's, 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 it's what we do, you know, in terms of supporting consumers. You know, one of the really neat initiatives that we put forward in this piece of legislation is uh, the Green Energy uh, Green Button Initiative. So uh, even for many people that have moved their businesses to home-based businesses now or operating out of their, their homes, um, what this is going to do is it's going to enable businesses um, you know, that operate out of their home or uh, homeowners uh, complete control and data of their energy usage. Um, that currently does not exist uh, today, but we are going to uh, ask our LDCs and, and others to to give the consumers the data so they can use apps to determine how they can be more energy efficient. You know, we've seen this rolled out in California, and it saved some consumers 10 to 20% on average. So, um, you know, we're really looking forward to just enabling uh, regulation to, to make life simpler for, uh, for businesses uh, in Ontario and, and also for the people of Ontario. And this legislation also promotes the enhancement uh, protections for workers uh, by strengthening policies that keep them safe. So explain that to me. Yeah, you know, a lot of times we uh, there's there's so much, you know, when, when you're a business owner, you've got to comply with so many different um, regulations. Um, in, in some circumstances, we're, we're, we're streamlining eight different regulations into one. Um, standardized process uh, or standardized regulation so businesses can um, adapt to it easier, can follow it uh, uh, easier. 
on top of that, we're you know we're we're updating you know things like first aid uh, requirements to keep workers safe. Uh, you know that that's been uh, for some businesses fairly difficult. When we um, you know talk about uh, working at heights or harmonizing you know uh, some safety rules across the province, uh, um, these are all going to be combined into uh, a legislation that will. Um, really help businesses be able to navigate regulation because we want businesses to be able to um, navigate uh, uh, to uh, navigate regulations in a, in a way that not only supports them but also supports the safety of their employees as well. So it's really about modernizing. It's really about uh, making sure that people get the, the supports they need and businesses can spend more time rather than going through hundreds of pages of regulation or uh, outdated or doing outdated reports that they can really focus their time on uh, on building their businesses. In other words, it is red tape reduction. It's cutting the red tape uh, right down to the core. So why now and why this particular type of legislation? You know, we've been committed since the start of the pandemic, um, or even before that, since we came into government to making Ontario more competitive. You know, to date, uh, we introduced $338 million of savings to businesses uh, through regulatory modernization. And I think we can continue uh, to use regulatory modernization as a tool to support small businesses. Anytime we can shift away, you know, that, uh, a time that a small business owner spends, um, you, know, you know, filling out onerous reports, uh, anytime we can take time away from, you know, having to comply with outdated uh, regulation, um, we want those business owners to focus on supporting their business, focus on growing their business, but also at the same time looking at ways to really uh, push forward uh, and support uh, their recovery in the, in the next couple of months, which is going to be very, very important. We're going to give them all the tools, whether it's the financial supports that we've put forward, but also uh, focus in on a regulatory perspective to ensure that they get the, the supports they need. And what about support for the not-for-profit sector? One of the really neat uh, you know, things, obviously, uh, we've had to kind of transition online um, significantly, and, and many of these acts have never really taken into consideration that, um, um, you know, uh, virtual meetings are uh, of uh, necessity. So many boards uh, cannot meet virtually by, uh, by the way um, legislation has been drafted. Um, so we're going to be making amendments to ensure that, uh, you know, especially non-for-profits uh, have the ability uh, to conduct virtual meetings during COVID-19. So this is going to be a change to the Not-for-Profit Corporations Act. Um, and it's really going to allow them to continue to operate uh, despite uh, the restrictions uh, uh, and uh, due to COVID because they had to be physical meetings. So it's just another way to support um, uh, many of these uh, through the pandemic. So this piece of legislation now will be before the legislature. When will we see it actually come to fruition? So I introduced this on Thursday and I tabled it before the House. Uh, and so it was going to be debated on Monday and Tuesday in the House. Uh, and, and then the process from there goes to, you know, the bill will go to committee. Um, you know, stakeholders will have an opportunity to offer their input uh, into uh, some of the changes that we are making, and then also at the same time, bring it back to the House for the third reading, vote on it, and hopefully we get it passed and uh, into a law uh, within the month. Uh, but, um, you know, we're really focused on making sure that we can get, uh, uh, you know, these changes in place so businesses can save more money, more time, and, and do what they do best, which is get back to creating more opportunities for, for, for hardworking families across this province and really focusing on building their businesses back. Will this make a difference, do you think? Will this help some businesses stay alive, stay afloat, stay open? We're bringing, you know, forward these regulatory changes, you know, based off of, um, you know, meetings, based off of uh, insight from small businesses, uh, businesses, industry in general, because, you know, they need all the help they can get. Um, you know, this uh, combined with uh, many of the support, the financial supports that we're bringing forward, um, uh, such as the Small Business Support Grant, uh, the Digital Main Street Program, reinvesting, um, you know, the Main Street Relief uh, Grant that we put forward last year. Um, these are all aimed at ensuring that businesses have every tool at their disposal to get through this very difficult period. Uh, and we want to use everything at our disposal to, to be, be able to do that, whether that be uh, through the, the lens of regulatory modernization, financial supports, 
uh, or even moral support. We're, we're, we're going to be there for these businesses who have really stepped up to the plate uh, during this very difficult time. Prabhmeet Sarkaria, Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Reduction, thank you for spending time on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. It's always an absolute pleasure. After the break, loneliness in the pandemic. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The long and lingering pandemic has created huge mental health challenges for many people from all walks of life. Putting COVID-19 behind us and finding some sense of normalcy, there is hope. It's called the vaccine. And there is help thanks to a number of government-supported programs and initiatives that are ours for the taking. We just need to know what's out there. Joining us with those details is the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions and the MPP for Vaughan Woodbridge, Michael Chabolo. Great to have you with us on the feed. Pleasure to be with you as well, Anne. All sorts of surveys coming out of late and pointing to the fact that the mental health of Ontarians is eroding and rapidly. What is your response to that? Uh, well, I completely agree with the premise. Uh, we are in a pandemic in and of its own when it comes to mental health and addictions that started long before COVID-19. So I agree that we have serious issues uh, adding on everything, the COVID-19 and uh, the implications that it's had with the lockdowns that we've had to institute. What are the supports out there for, let's say, Ontario's first responders? They're dealing with PTSD and other mental health challenges. And we also understand that there has been some support uh, that has been offered to our OPP members as well. Uh, the... The government recognized immediately the need to invest in uh, mental health and addiction supports uh, during the pandemic as a result of having to close many in-person um, um, therapies and, and centers that, that would be delivering services. So we invested heavily into uh, internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy and other supports specifically for individuals. So we have programs for children. We have programs for uh, adults through Morneau Chappelle and Mind Beacon, and we've developed a specific program for first responders and frontline workers. I can tell you, Anne, that at this point in time, there are over 60,000 Ontarians that are utilizing the online services that can be reached through Ontario.ca forward slash mental health, and there are also over 6,000 frontline workers that are accessing uh, specific programs related to the work that they do. Um, in addition to that, we've recognized the importance of diverting calls uh, through the, 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 the call centers, the, the 911 call centers, and have uh, hired individuals that can help uh, divert calls away from 911 to utilize the supports and services of people that are specialized in mental health. We're also concerned about the mental health of our first responders, and we are also uh, hiring additional supports, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, to provide them with the supports they need. And the, one of the investments is with the OPP that's been um, uh, brought forward, and in addition to that, additional mobile intervention crisis teams to be able to get out into the communities and, and help individuals without having to have them uh, go into emergency rooms and hospitals. You know, I think about our healthcare workers, uh, frontline ER physicians, ICU nurses, and everyone else involved in trying to help COVID-19 patients stay alive and survive. Their mental uh, anguish or mental uh, burden must be enormous. Do they reach out for help? Is there help for those who are helping? Absolutely. Uh, the concern that we have when it comes to our first responders is that we have uh, um, uh, supports for them uh, that are in place, that are readily available. And what that means is, uh, right now, online supports. We're providing individuals with uh, the supports through uh, programs, uh, cognitive-based therapies that are available online. 
And um, in addition to that, when they need something more than that, we do also have access to services through St. Joe's and through uh, many of the other uh, uh, hospitals. Uh, but one thing that we do know is that frontline workers and first responders would rather work um, uh, with other first responders and frontline workers. So there's peer-to-peer supports as well that we put in place. There, we're doing everything we can because, again, we recognize how important it is to keep our health care workers healthy as well. I spoke recently with the head of the Canadian Medical Association. We were uh, dissecting and, and detailing a survey that pointed to the fact that very few ER physicians and frontline healthcare workers are actually accessing the support that is out there for them. Well, and that's one of the concerns we have because, again, when you're dealing with uh, frontline workers and first responders, they're different than most of us. They have a vocation to be doing the work that they're doing. And I, I believe in a lot of ways when they feel uh, that they can't cope because of very difficult situations, you know, we, we deal with this and we talk about complex trauma. There's also moral injury that, that, that they feel as a result of the exposures that they get. And it's very difficult to deal with those issues when you're not amongst other people that share those same kind of concerns. So we have been encouraging the peer-to-peer groups. We've been encouraging the online supports because they are anonymous. They are free of charge. And we recognize that, you know, they're bearing the brunt of a very difficult time having to put in extraordinary hours and dealing with extraordinary circumstances uh, even though they have the training, it's just very, very difficult to care for someone um, with COVID-19 in the intensive care unit or for the stresses that are being put on our, our uh, public health care system as a result of COVID-19. What about mental health help for students and really even for their parents at this point? That's another area that's uh, extremely concerning, given the fact we've always believed from the beginning as a government that the kids have to be in school. The kids have to be provided the opportunity to have that social cognitive development in an environment that allows them and is conducive to their growth. The problem is with lockdowns, and again, community spread is affecting, is affecting everything. It's affecting our school's ability to function free of COVID. We've had a great record up to now, but the concern is the community spread. So we've been encouraging people through Kids Helpline, uh, through Connects Ontario, there are supports for children and for the moms, which is extremely important because, again, they're having to do multiple functions that, that require them to be kind of on call to be the teacher, the parent, the spouse, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the service provider to, to the entire family and the glue that's keeping everything together. So we're doing the best we can to provide those supports, albeit virtual, and all, virtual supports aren't always the best supports, but under the circumstances, we're ensuring that the supports are there to provide people the, the, the help they need where, where they need it with the intention of also, where necessary, having in-person services continue. Ontario has created uh, mobile mental health clinics, which during times when you can be with someone else, of course masked and all of the guidelines adhered to, are those mobile mental health clinics in action right now that we're in lockdown and stay-at-home orders again? Well, I, I'm really proud of uh, the, 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 this investment. It's a pilot project in the province. There will be four units that will be dispatched in rural and remote areas to begin with, um, and they will act as uh, counseling centers. There will be uh, a nurse practitioner on board together with a social worker, and uh, they will be able to attend uh, community centers uh, in rural and, and remote areas and be able to provide supports to individuals in need. There is one that's functional right now that um, was, was actually created in York Region, in York, York South Simcoe through CMHA. Uh, they call it MOBIS, and uh, when I saw it, it was uh, done with donations. When I saw it, I thought it was absolutely brilliant, the number of people being served and the ability to get into these communities where, you know, Manitoulin, for instance, it's a, an all-day affair to get to the Sudbury Hospital, and if you're lucky, make it back, you know, in, within 24 hours. It, it's, it's ridiculous how hard it is for some uh, people to be able to access services. So these, bu- these buses, these mobile units will be able to look after not only mental health in these different areas by providing group supports, individual supports, but also education 
and prevention. Because again, young, uh, the younger generation will have access to group sessions with someone trained in the area uh, will, of mental health. We will have the ability to talk about, um, you know, diabetes. We'll be able to talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, heart disease. We'll be able to provide supports and services that may not have otherwise reached into these communities, but for the fact that we have these mobile unit, units with trained individuals attending. And will they be back on the road when restrictions are lifted? Absolutely. They will be on the road the minute I can get them outfitted and on <laughs> of the road. Yeah. I'm excited about these because I think this is uh, revolutionary from the standpoint of, you know, the, side, the province, and, and you know this, the province is, is bigger than France and Germany combined. And you travel in some areas and you could be going hours before you see another person. And these remote communities have little to no access to uh, uh, health and, and mental health. So these units for me are exciting because they form the basis of a hub-and-spoke model where we can start delivering services not just in the hub area, but be able to branch out into uh, areas outside of the cities. Now, you, I, you know, some people may say, well, yeah, that's great for Kenora and Thunder Bay, and, but you think about Niagara-on-the-Lake and Niagara Falls, and you think about the area between Hamilton and St. Catharines, there are vast areas in, in that direction where there's little to no support. You go southwest towards Windsor, and there's all kinds of areas, Godrich and all kinds of areas, where there are no supports for our farmers and for our, our populations that, that, that live in, the, in these more remote communities. Well, we're going to change that. We're going to create and deliver services at the same level as we have them in our centers by taking people from our centers and bringing them out to the communities and providing the supports. Not the, the most ideal solution. The best would be to have all those connected services within that area. But unfortunately, we live in a, a very, very big uh, province, and there are a lot of investments we have to still make to uh, to get us to that point. But we're working towards that with our roadmap to wellness. Minister Tabolo, in my introduction, I mentioned that putting COVID-19 behind us and finding some sense of normalcy can be achieved in a number of ways, one of which is the vaccine. I know you have a shout-out that you want to uh, give right now to the Ontario yes. Vaccine Hotline. Go for it. Okay, well, I am 61 years old. I had my shot, uh, uh, I think, two weeks ago on Good Friday. I called at 10.30 in the morning. They gave me an appointment at 5.30. There are vaccines available, and as long as the supply keeps coming from the feds, we are going to vaccinate as many people as possible. We're doing over 100,000 right now. Uh, the listeners that are, are listening, if they're concerned about being able to book their appointment, the simple number, 888 999 6488. Dial that number. If you don't speak English or, you know, are, are shy about speaking English because it's not your first language, push three and say the language you want to, uh, you want to speak. There are 300 operators waiting to speak in your language, 300 different languages. So you can book your appointment. There's no excuse. It's perfectly safe. And when we get to herd immunity, 75 to 80 percent, I look forward to meeting you in person and in giving you a big hug and thanking you for giving me the opportunity to talk about the great work that we're doing in the province and at the same time keeping the people of York Region informed. So thank you so much. Well, I will greet you with open arms when it is safe to do so. Thank you, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions and the MPP for Vaughn Woodbridge, Michael Tabolo. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Living alone can be tough at the best of times, but loneliness is heightened during this pandemic. Tina Cortez with more. There has been much said and written about the impact of the pandemic on our mental health. One of the feelings so many are experiencing is loneliness. To discuss this further, we are joined by York University professor Andréanne Cormier. Professor Cormier, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, you have been quoted as saying that the pandemic has put us on the verge of a social recession. What does that mean? Well, it comes from uh, an article that uh, was published in The Atlantic by uh, former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy and Dr. Alice Chen. And in this article, they, they came up with this notion and they argued that um, uh, they argued that was back in March 2020, and they argued that the COVID pandemic could cause that, what they call the social recession, which is uh, basically a deterioration of the quality of social bonds. 
So we might think, for example, uh, if, of just, just the deterioration of the quality of everyday social interactions and hmm. quality of everyday social interactions would be an example of that. And the two main indicators of a social recession would be a kind of durable, persistent rise in loneliness in society and of social isolation. And the pandemic has certainly caused that, there is no doubt. Now, in terms of loneliness, it's inevitable, isn't it, that it is affecting more people? Staying at home to stay safe, restrictions on seeing family and friends, so much is on hold or virtual. What can we do about it? Oh, that's the best thing we can do, I suppose, is to practice um, solidarity, try to help one another in the best ways that we can right now, and also be in touch with our loved ones, because being alone does not necessarily mean being lonely. Uh, Of course, social isolation is a major risk factor for for loneliness, Uh, but we we. We don't have to experience loneliness if we are alone. The more we are alone, the more we are at risk, but we can still sort of keep our relationships alive by uh, calling friends and family and staying in touch and actively working on uh, deepening uh, the quality of our relationships. Are there those who are more affected, you know, is it young people or is it the elderly or both? Yeah, I've seen some evidence coming from the UK that... um, uh, Young, young adults between, if I remember correctly, age uh, 18 and 24 could be the most affected. There's no doubt that young adults uh, are uh, at risk of, of loneliness. Uh, it's not exactly clear why, but there is this data, and of course older people as well, depending on their living conditions. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and your courses at the university? Yeah, I teach uh, ethics, political philosophy, and philosophy of law. As I said, I'm a political philosopher at the risk of justice. And I'm interested in um, now in a new research project that I just started actually, believe it or not, before the pandemic started. I got interested in loneliness and the question of what is the role of the state and of um, different institutions, especially educational institutions, in combating and preventing loneliness in society and more generally sort of facilitating access to meaningful, high-quality relationships, which is something that has been neglected uh, traditionally by political philosophers who have tended to focus more on material goods, for example. And can you share some of your findings so far? I know it's very early. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to sort of develop, integrate, um, try to integrate, um, so I don't do empirical research, although I read a lot of empirical research to inform my work. I'm trying to sort of make the argument, really, within the context of liberal egalitarian theories of justice, that the state has this, uh, of justice, sorry, uh, theories of justice, that the state has this basic um, ethical and political obligation to adopt laws and public policies that are aimed at empowering citizens to overcome and avoid chronic loneliness. I'm trying to explore all kinds of implications that this would have concretely. And one of them is, I think, that there's a basic right to uh, treatment against chronic and intense loneliness, so that would imply massively funding mental health, for example. And a second implication that I'm exploring right now is uh, the idea of a right to high-quality relationships education. We talk about, a lot about sex education in schools, but much less about relationships education, uh, of empowering citizens to be able to form and maintain high-quality, satisfying relationships within the family, at home, um, in loving relationships, in the city, uh, at work, right? And this requires, in some cases, quite complex social skills, right? So I think we need to talk more about that uh, in the future of um, education policy. And do you think that government officials and others would be open to, you know, this kind of support? You know, do you think you're going to get the support that is needed to, um, to help folks through whether it's loneliness or other mental health issues? Yeah, uh, well, I sure, I sure hope so. I think that there's, there's hope uh, that uh, there will be a political will to do something about loneliness and uh, isolation post-pandemic because now it's at the forefront of everybody's mind, so there might be a kind of unique motivation to do something about it. Um, and also I'm hoping that, you know, I'm, my contribution is to develop, uh, you know, our arguments that about the, the, the fundamental importance of doing just that so the combination of the two things, that there's such powerful reasons 
and that there might be political will gives me a lot of hope that um, developing a strategy in Canada to combat and prevent loneliness in society might become a, a major political goal in the future. That's terrific. Unique motivation for these unusual times indeed. Thank you for your help, Professor Cormier. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. And if you need to talk to someone, go to the Canadian Mental Health Association of York Region or call them at 905-841-3977. When we come back, why charities need our help more than ever. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Our next few stories on the feed focus on fundraising. Jim Lang takes it from here. Well, it's that time of year again. The Canadian Cancer Society getting ready for their annual Daffodil fundraising campaign. And is it trying to spark a brighter future and a brighter outlook to cancer in the future with April? Uh, to talk more about it, thrilled to be talking about their leader, research and innovation at the Canadian Cancer Society, Dr. Stuart Edmonds. Dr. Edmonds, how are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you? Good. Before we get to the campaign, we've been hearing so much about cancer all my life here in Canada. I guess just try to educate the listeners. What kind of leaps and bounds have we made in the medical community in this country when it comes to cancer research and fighting the battle against cancer every year? Well, we've made significant uh, um, differences in, in how cancer is managed um, over, over, over decades. And, and it's really due to research that, that, uh, that we've supported and others supported that we've made, made these big, significant improvements into, uh, you know, into, into you know, how, how, how cancer is diagnosed and how cancer is treated. And, and then also how, um, how, uh, how people are actually managing uh, post-cancer treatment. So make sure, making sure that quality of life is, in, is improved uh, significantly. And if we, if we just look at the numbers that, but, you know, in, 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 in the forties, we were looking at kind of a, a 25% survival rate for cancer. And now we're at an average of 60% survival. So, um, and, and that tells you kind of a broader sense, but actually um, there's a number of cancers now that are considered to be almost curable, like testicular cancer and certain uh, uh, lymphomas as well. So, so we've made tremendous strides over, over the recent decades, and, and I think we're poised to make a significant strides again in, in, in the next few decades. Research is, I feel it's at a bit of a tipping point in terms of, uh, you know, all the knowledge that we've gained and how that knowledge is now being applied to really patient benefit. So I'm really excited about what the next 10 to 20 years are going to look like for, uh, for cancer. Well, I think about your position, doctor, in research and innovation and other oncologists around the country, and sometimes being a doctor of that speciality can be a little bit difficult because you're telling people bad news, but it also must be exciting knowing what's to come and how far you've come in the last, say, 10, 15 years. Well, well that's exactly it. I, I, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about what the, what the, uh, the future holds for, uh, for those that are going to experience cancer and hopefully those that aren't going to experience cancer because of uh, ways that we find, new ways we find to prevent cancer, which is, um, again, very, very exciting. Again, you can get details for the Daffodil Campaign from the Canadian Cancer Society in the month of April, cancer.ca slash daffodil. The goal of this organization called 27 Spark Grants joint $4 million research, uh, research initiative with different people involved in the country. And, and it's great to see these collaborations with different organizations pooling brain power, pooling resources, but pooling everything together for a common good. Oh, it, it, it's, it's wonderful, and we, we, we strive to work in partnership where we can, and uh, to partner with um, uh, federal government agencies like uh, the Canadian Institute of Health Research and uh, Brain Canada was is really important for us um, because it it actually um, shows that we're we're investing uh, donor dollars and matching those donor dollars with uh, with federal funds as well. So it actually makes our our funding go further. This is outstanding. Now, of course, because of COVID, uh, there's going to be no daffodil pins this year because of just it's not safe. Uh, but you can still make your donations, accepting those online, and and be a part of it, and get out there in social media and 
make sure you tag the Canadian Cancer Society and tell everyone that you were part of the daffodil campaign because it'll spur other people to be a part of it. And as Dr. Edmonds has explained it to everyone, every little bit makes a big difference in a potential life. Well, that's exactly right. And and, and you, you mentioned the, the Spark Grant competition that we've recently um, started funding. These, these grants are, are incredibly uh, exciting. They, they really, we, we ask researchers to, to basically show it, to propose something that we have never seen before and, and you know, what is going to have a high, high impact, but maybe high risk as well. Uh, and they didn't disappoint. And these are the kind of studies that, uh, that are funded by the generous donations for, to the Daffodil Campaign. And just to give you a sense of some of the projects that, that we're supporting through this, um, one project is looking at, you know, we, we, we're always challenged to understand about um, uh, exposure to carcinogens because you've got to be able to identify when that exposure happened and, and actually get a sample from that person at that time. And so that's logistically, that's a real challenge. So, so one of the research teams is proposing a, um, using contact lenses and tears to collect information about carcinogen exposure over a, over a 24-hour period. And, so, and, and they're looking to, see, to, to look at um, whether that has an impact on uh, risk of uh, breast cancer. Uh, another study is, is using a similar kind of approach but looking at um, sweat and breath for, um, for potential risk of lung cancer. And this builds on, on really neat studies where, um, where people have found that dogs can actually identify people with lung cancer through the sense of their sense of smell. And so really kind of moving that into more a technology base and using, using uh, sweat and breath and, and, and then also artificial intelligence to be able to identify these patients early. And then we can get them into a lung cancer screening program earlier. So those are two examples of really exciting work that we're really, we're really pleased to fund. And, and, and again, this wouldn't be possible without the generous donations of Canadians for events, for campaigns like the Daffodil Campaign. Again, cancer.ca slash daffodil. Be a part of the daffodil campaign with the Canadian Cancer Society. Help Dr. Evans and his team uh, fight cancer. You've heard the numbers. Once upon a time, you got cancer. It was almost lethal. Now the odds of you surviving are better than ever, and you can make a big difference. Dr. Edmonds, thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you and your staff for all the work you do to save Canadians each and every day. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, Tina Cortez with Care Community Connections. Mark Koning is the Manager of Communications and Operations at Care Community Connections. Before we talk about the Taste for Life fundraiser, Mark, tell us about Care Community Connections. Care Community Connections is a nonprofit organization. We were formerly known as AIDS Community of York Region, but um, over the years, we've kind of expanded a little bit. We've adopted a Rainbow Space program, which is uh, a social program for the 2S LGBT community, uh, as well as a harm reduction program. We work pretty closely with York Region Public Health in uh, doing outreach and getting clean supplies out for people who are in need. So can you share with us, how has outreach and your work changed over this past year and then some of COVID-19? Um, outreach it has changed quite drastically. We used to um, go out to various other community agencies in York Region. Uh, of course, a lot of that is different now. Um, we've adapted pretty well at home, working from home. We've moved a lot of things online. Um, our Rainbow Space program is doing well online with the groups. And our HIV program uh, seems to be surviving uh, as well, staying in touch with clients and um, offering more one-on-one -on -one calls, I guess. The harm reduction program has, um, it's been a little bit of a struggle, but we've uh, survived. We do have a lot of community partners that are still open, so we've been putting a lot of uh, harm reduction supplies together and getting in touch with these community partners to help in the distribution. And in general terms, how are your clients doing and how have they managed through COVID-19? Um, actually, they, I think they've been doing quite well. They, they seem to adapt a lot to the online thing. And, you know, most of them, most people feel safer at home, uh, anyway. So being, um, 
being at home and working online, if they have that available to them, is, is great. Uh, they like the group sessions that we offer. If they don't have the ability to get online, we do um, offer you know, services where we go directly to their homes. Uh, we've still helped with our drive-to-care programs. And um, as I said before, we've kind of struggled a little bit with the outreach services, but we've, we've seen to manage. And we, as I said, we've stayed in touch and we meet people kind of where they're at. Now, for so many groups over this past year, fundraising has been such a challenge. What can you tell us about the Taste for Life fundraiser and how is it different this year for you? Yes, um, fundraising, yes. In general, it's been, it's been quite challenging. And um, in fact, we even contemplated whether we could, what we could do. Last year, obviously, our Taste for Life fundraiser was canceled. Um, it was in April. And, uh, you know, the outbreak and the lockdown just kind of happened here in the month of March. So we didn't really have much choice. But we've, over the year, given it a lot more thought. Um, we've had to come at it a different way because most of it's, being done virtually, whereas a taste for life in the past was done pretty much person to person, face to face. Uh, we had diners go into restaurants that are struggling, um, you know, so we're obviously not able to do that. And we don't want to ask restaurants to help raise funds for us or offer us anything in return. So we're kind of um, changing things around a bit and we're promoting restaurants that have helped us in the past. And while we're doing that, hopefully, people will take the time to uh, donate back to us to, to help us with our program because they're still pretty vitally needed. Um, but we do understand that it's a struggle for a lot of people. So how exactly is Taste for Life working this year and how can listeners participate? So this year, um, we've been in touch with a, a lot of um, different organizations We've sent out a couple of mailers to people um, to let them know what's going on. Basically, as I said, it's a fundraising event uh, happening virtually. Um, we're promoting it on our social media channels as much as we can pretty much every day. Uh, we have wonderful partners like 105.9 helping us out with the um, promotions of letting people know. We've been in touch with various townships. Uh, we have been in touch with restaurants just to let them know what we're doing, uh, so they're not they're not taking it taken back. But it's it's a struggle for them, so we didn't want to ask them too much. Um, there is a website that people can visit, tasteforlife.org/yorkregion, and you can go there to uh, get a little bit more information about what we're doing, and it will also lead you to a campaign page where you can directly donate to. Care Community Connections. That's terrific. Okay, Mark, one more time, that uh, website and uh, an email address where people can go to and donate? It is uh, a taste for life forward slash York region. And you can also uh, email us at info at org. That's terrific. Mark Koning from Care Community Connections. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. Since 1982, Blue Door has been providing emergency housing for the homeless population of York Region. As the region has grown, so too have the services of the organization. To share some of the program details with us is Alex Chang. He is the Director of Community Programs. Welcome to the feed, Alex. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having, uh, for having me to, uh, here today. Uh, yes, uh, since 1982, Blue Door has been a pillar in the community here in York Region, uh, providing emergency housing services uh, to men, families, and youth uh, that, uh, not, that don't have a place to live. And we do that by providing a supportive environment that leads, uh, that leads us to rapidly rehouse people into housing options that could include permanent housing, could include uh, transitional housing, or uh, reunification with families as well. Um, recently, we've added uh, 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 more programs, and I think today I'm here to talk about one of those. Yeah, and we will talk a little bit about the inclusion housing program in a moment. But what do you want to say to maybe our listeners who think that, you know, homelessness is not really an issue here in the 905? This is an issue for the downtown core. I think people have a misconception of what homelessness, homelessness looks like. 
when we look at uh, denser cities like Toronto, home homelessness is very much visible because you can see it in the streets. You can see it um, associated in uh, in the subways or or in encampments in in parks, for example, in the downtown core. Uh, in York Region, because of our geography and how spread out we are, uh, it is not re- readily visible. People uh, stay in precarious situations. They may uh, be camping, but camping in, in forests, for example, right? Um, so we don't have uh, necessarily the same type of visible outlook of homelessness, uh, but, uh, uh, but people experience it nonetheless. So let's circle back to the inclusion housing program. And in, I mean, I-N-N. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? It's a really exciting time for us here at Blue Door. We've had we've added quite a number of pro- programs within the last year, but inclusion is one of those programs that are vital uh, for our service within the region. Uh, for many many years, uh, through our service of youth, we've been hearing from two S LGBTQ youth um, that uh, uh, that a service is needed to address uh, their needs. Uh, most uh, most importantly, I think uh, what we need to realize is that for uh, for youth who identify as part of the 2S LGBTQ community, uh, traditionally they haven't accessed shelter supports, and there, and there is a really good reason for that. Most of it has to do with the stigma and a sense of safety as well. When we look at national statistics, for example, we know that uh, youth uh, experiencing homelessness that are part of the 2S LGBTQ uh, population um, tend to be overrepresented in um, uh, in the population as well. Um, So that's the need that we're trying to uh, close the gap on. Uh, there's been a couple of recent studies in the last uh, two or three years, uh, one conducted by Seneca College and another one by uh, Dr. Alex Abamovich from CAMH as well. And they both highlight the need for a um, uh, for an inclusive um, uh, program that, that's able to provide uh, housing services specific to this population. And by housing services, we're talking more about a supportive uh, transitional type of approach. So then, how can those who need the help get it? Well, very, very simple. Uh, we've uh, we have a house uh, in York Region in the New Market area. Uh, we're able to serve uh, four youth at any one time uh, at the house. Um, they can uh, they can reach us uh, through uh, through email at inclusion at bluedoor.ca. That's I N N. C-L-U-I-S-I-O-N at bluedor.ca. They can uh, contact us through our website, bluedor.ca. We're on social media as well, on Facebook and Twitter. They can call us. They can also call us for more information too. Um, With uh, the house being online now, um, the the service is is accessible. There is an application process. We do have to interview participants, uh, prospective participants as as well, just to ensure that it is the right fit and that the program will be able to uh, meet their needs uh, in terms of be, being able to build some of that skill and some of that independent living, um, uh, that uh, supportive housing and transitional housing supports. And how many people can live in this residence? Right. Uh, if, uh, we have a house that we're renting in the community and, that, uh, and the house is able to support up to four individuals. And how long do they typically stay? Um, I think my answer to that would be as uh, as long as the, uh, as long as they need. I think typically we're expecting youth to stay within that one year period. Mm-hmm. I think on a case by case basis, especially with uh, uh, with this particular population, we understand that we need to be flexible as well. Uh, so on a case by case basis, depending on uh, on uh, each person's life situation, we may be able to extend that further. I think what we need to realize as well is that uh, is that youth need time to be able to develop some of those independent skills, and uh, for uh, uh, for uh, for uh, for these youth in particular, there are a lot of things that we want to work on. Um, there's pieces around uh, gender identity, stigma. There's pieces around uh, education, employment, uh, uh, maybe even reconnecting with family, and also working through trauma as well. That uh, we want to be very sensitive to, and we want to make sure that uh, uh, that the youth have. The proper time to be able to navigate that with us. So it sounds like beyond the stability of a home, you're also providing support, mental health support, connections, time to get them back on their feet. That's that's right. I mean, what we want to do with this home is provide mentorship and support. Men- the mentorship piece is very very important to us. Uh, we've heard loud and clear from uh, from the youth in the community and also other programs across the country uh, that are uh, doing um, uh, that have taken a similar approach 
that uh, uh, that having someone with lived experience and having a member of the community, of the US LGBTQ community, uh, as a staff member is key. So we want to make sure that uh, that we're able to provide that mentorship, uh, as well as uh, be able to pro- provide wraparound supports, linkages to uh, to the other wonderful organizations in the region and beyond that are uh, uh, that share the same uh, the same mission that we do in terms of ensuring uh, that uh, that uh, that US LGBTQ uh, youth are safe. Now, Alex, since the start of the pandemic, so many charitable groups have been struggling. How has Blue Door changed how it fundraises, how you work, how you provide support? Wow, that's a loaded question. I think <laughs> uh, we've had to change. We've had we 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 have had to change and adapt. And I think uh, uh, what the pandemic has uh, uh, has brought to us is a realization that uh, uh, that things are possible. Right, uh, especially with a collective approach, and I think that's the first lesson that we've learned. That uh, as the, uh, we we uh, we want to approach the problem collectively with our partners. And uh, with COVID, uh, the first thing that we uh, that we did was uh, was make sure that we had a network of like-minded uh, agencies that uh, that were able to uh, to put in a COVID response uh, 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 right away. So we were able to communicate each other. We became tighter knit with regards to our fundraising. Uh, in, uh, in community outreach, that completely changed for us because a lot of those, uh, um, a, a lot of that was in person before. Um, this past holiday, for example, was very different for uh, for us because we didn't have people come in uh, to our services, dropping off food or clothing and so forth. So all of our outreach uh, had to pivot into virtual outreach, and it's been very successful for us as well because I think uh, the community understands that the need is still there, uh, and that we want to be able to. Uh, uh, to be creative in terms of uh, um, in terms of making sure that people understand uh, that people re- uh, remember that uh, uh, that the folks that we uh, that we serve have those needs and that we have other avenues uh, for people to contribute as well. Um, we we uh, we had our, um, the, our uh, one of our fundraisers in um, uh, in February, uh, coldest night of the year. And in past years, that would have been in, an in-person uh, fundraiser, for example. And this year, it was mm-hmm. all virtual. So we encourage people to uh, do their walks on their own, record it, send us photos, and at the same time, raise funds uh, for uh, uh, for Blue Door and for all the services that we provide. So I think it's uh, it's about uh, ingenuity, it's about pivoting, but also keeping that connection. Um, yeah, and doing it in a different way. Absolutely. For our listeners who want more information or who want to help or donate, how can they do that? Yeah, but uh, similar uh, in, uh, in terms of inquiring about the program as well, we have a presence on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, at Blue Door, uh, Blue Door Support. Uh, we have our, our main website, bluedoor.ca. Um, you, can, uh, you, know, you can get in touch with us at our general um, uh, email address, Info at bluedoor.ca, or you can call us directly as well at 905-898-1015 for more information as well. That's great. Alex Chang is the Director of Community Programs for Blue Door. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Tina. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.